goodness. For those of you who don't know, we have about half of our leadership staff and half of our folks right now are in Destin, Florida, visiting Shoreline Church. And a, it's a great church. I was down there just a few weeks ago, and it would be a cool place to check out if you go down for vacation or something. But the reason that we are down there working with them throughout this month is because they are currently meeting in the Rave Motion Pictures Theater in the Destin Commons. And if you've ever been to Destin, you know that's a pretty awesome place. It's like the coolest mall ever, and they got the giant theater. And we're interested in that because starting in October, Celebration is going to be meeting at the Rave at the Galleria over in Patton Creek. So that's really exciting, and that's where all of this is going. That's what we've been working for and moving towards and praying about and preparing for for the past several years, been looking for where to go, and it's been revealed to us that it's the Galleria in Hoover. So we're all just incredibly excited about this opportunity. Um, so we will be relaunching. Services here will be ending in the next couple weeks. Our last one's late August. August 28th is the last week we will be here. Then we will be moving to sort of a house church model for a couple months. And then starting in October, we will be hosting services in one of the big theaters at the Rave. So it's very exciting where this church is going. And we're all very thankful to be able to get in on the ground level of that and be a part of what God is doing in Hoover in the greater Birmingham area. So that's, that's where David is this morning. If you don't know who I am, I am the B team. I am the youth pastor here at Celebration. And uh, since David's gone, he's... <laughs> the sound guy thinks that's hilarious. <laughs> since David's gone, he's given me the opportunity to speak with y'all again, which I'm really excited about. One of my friends was uh, pointing out to me that in the first year I was here, I preached twice. In the past two months, I've had like five sermons. So I'm really excited about the time that I've had to speak with y'all. So make sure that you thank, before you leave, that you thank the skeleton crew that is here today that made worship possible, that made church possible, that set up yesterday and will break down afterwards. It's really encouraging to just hear it. Thank you. So make sure you thank our skeleton crew. So what is becoming? What have we been doing? Um, over the past, it's been a little over a month now, probably five weeks, We've been in the sermon series that we've titled Becoming, and what is that about? Well, the notion is that as human beings, we are always becoming something. It is impossible for us to stay static. For us to stay where we are is simply not an option because we're always getting better or getting worse. And we have to choose what direction we're going to go, what we are going to become. So a quick recap, the first week of this, David preached on how we as celebration need to be moving towards and becoming the church that God needs us to be to go into the rave, to reach Hoover, to reach out to a greater population and do more and more good as a church and what that looks like. The next week, uh, Bob was here. I think he had a fishing pole on stage. And he was talking about becoming better fishers of men. This big churchy word is evangelism. And it's this thing that we're expected to do. And I think in churches it's become 
sort of something on your checklist, like I should evangelize someone today. Someone today I need to tell about Jesus. But it's much bigger and better and more beautiful than that because it's, it's more of a way of life. This may be the worst example I've ever used on stage anywhere. But um, this, <laughs> brace yourself. Uh, this past Friday, Ashley and I were eating lunch at um, the Tip Top Grill. It's this cool little burger joint on top of Shades Crest. But we were eating there with one of the youth, and there was this awesome bug. It was this giant grasshopper, and he was like this big, or, or like bug size. But um, he looks like a leaf, and he's really cool, and he's really juicy, and I wish I hadn't used that adjective. Um, he's this big bug, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And Ashley was off washing her hands or doing something. And she comes out of the building. I'm like, Ashley, come here. You've got to see this. This is so cool because I want to share the bug with her. And she comes over and she's like, yeah, that's a neat bug, Jeremy. But um, it's, it's that sort of thing, this excitement that you want to share. Like, I was not content having seen the bug. Someone else had to see it with me. And that's, that's a terrible example. But that's sort of like this. This is what evangelism about is about living this kind of life that is so real and so good and so exciting that we can't help but call everyone and show them What's possible? Look how cool this is. Look what Jesus has done. Um, The next two weeks, David spoke on this notion of becoming more like Christ. We call it sanctification. Um, And what it looks like and how we grow in maturity as Christians. And the second part of that last week we called being. And David spoke about having the trust, becoming the kind of people who can trust God enough to just be in their salvation, that you can rest in that promise, that you can enjoy this new life without fear that you have to balance the scales or work or earn this thing because we could never do it on our own. There's nothing you or I could ever do to become saved, to become acceptable to God, but he did all the work for us through the person of Jesus Christ. So that's where we've been in the past couple of weeks. And it's been a really exciting series. And so I want to continue it because I want to be a part of this because this has been really cool. And, and so I want to just go ahead and jump into the first text. Um, this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Matthew 5 is right here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is this huge, beautiful piece of scripture. Like, it's definitely in my, like, top three must-reads before you die. It's like, in most Bibles, four or five pages. And Caleb knows that I love the Sermon on the Mount. The uh, youth group and I studied it for the entire fall semester, and a little bit into the spring, probably like six months in five pages of the Bible, because there's so much there. It's so rich and dense. And juicy. Um, It's this beautiful piece of scripture where Jesus sits down with the people who are following him and says, this is what it looks like to live the way God wants. This is what the kingdom looks like. This way of living that he describes, it's like living like you are already in heaven. It's this new way of doing things. It's very strange and almost backwards, but it brings around this life that Jesus refers to as life to the fullest. And at the very beginning, 
we encounter this section that we have titled in a little like superscript above it in the Bible, the Beatitudes. Um, and I think the church has done a really poor job of teaching the Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes uh, means blessings, and that's what Jesus lays out. He, he uses this uh, formula in these prose over and over. Blessed are those who blank, for they will be blank. And it's been turned into almost a new legalism. Like Jesus shows up and gives us a new law, and we're supposed to follow it to get something, kind of tit for tat kind of thinking. And so the notion is to say that Jesus is saying, if we do this, we will get blessed. But I think there's something much better going on here. So let's look at this one, which is one of my favorites. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And the church has taught it kind of like, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you will be blessed. You'll come back to the beginning and get this blessing that Jesus is promising. But it seems to me, like Jesus is saying, that when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you have been blessed. This is a blessing to get to this point. So what is this thing, this hunger and thirsting for righteousness? It's when you have the courage to take off the rose-colored glasses and see the world for what it really is. When we look around and we're broken by the pain and suffering in this world, when we identify these gross systems of oppression and hatred that govern the way our world works, be it the the sex trade, be it hatred, be it racism, sexism, uh, those who lie and cheat to take homes and food from people, be it war, be it pornography, be it rape, be it this thing that creeps in and destroys families and rips people apart and ends friendships. And we see these things, and something in us says this is wrong. And we start to understand the gravity of this thing that the church has called the fall, where things started to get all messed up, where sin entered the picture and wrecked this beautiful thing that God had created. And something at the deepest, most inner level of what makes us human, this thing that you and I call the soul, starts to ache. And this hunger wells up in the most central part of what makes you you and you cry out at the deepest part of you this is wrong and you hunger and thirst for righteousness you crave things to be better because the suffering and the pain and the war and the depravity don't belong here and we know it and in this moment we have been blessed and God draws near and says I know, and I am with you. God joins us in this hunger and thirsting for righteousness. But not only does he join us, he makes us a promise. He says, I know, and you're right. This is not the way it's supposed to be, and I am with you in this, and you will be satisfied. This hunger and this thirst for a better world will be fulfilled. I am already in the process of making that better world now. 
But it doesn't stop there. In the person of Jesus Christ, God invites us to be a part of the solution, to be a part of fulfilling this hunger and this thirst. We have been invited as the church to make the world a better place. So we've acknowledged that there's something wrong here. And Paul, in Ephesians 6, puts it like this. He says that we're not fighting against people here. This thing that's, that we're sensing that's wrong, that's causing all of this, this is not necessarily humans, but we are fighting against forces and authorities and rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. This thing that we see on earth as evil in all its manifestations, be it war or hunger or lies or depravity or pornography or hatred or racism, these things are a manifestation of the truth that there is a force in the spiritual that is opposed to the way of God, that is standing in opposition to the way that God wants the world to be. And Paul identifies this here. The uh, churchy idiom for this is like, love the sinner, hate the sin. And that's kind of a notion here, but that doesn't give the right kind of gravity to it. It's not people that we are fighting against, but we are fighting against forces and authorities and rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. Jesus has a little more to say on this. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is taking his disciples, this group of young men who have chosen to follow him, and he's going north from Galilee. So they're leaving their hometown, and they're going about 20 miles north to the city of Caesarea Philippi. And they all know that's the only thing north. Like if you follow this road, you get to Caesarea Philippi. And the whole way, the disciples are probably kind of freaking out as they follow Jesus because Caesarea Philippi is not the kind of place that a good Jew should go. And why is that? Well, Caesarea Philippi is home to a group of people who worship the god Pan. And Pan is this weird mystical goat god. And they've built these massive temples where they do all sorts of things that the Jews do not approve of, including uh, during festivals, these wild and grotesque sexual acts with goats as a form of their basic piety. So this is a very strange community and very foreign to the Jew. And so Jesus takes his little Jewish buddies, his Talmudine, his disciples, and goes to Caesarea Philippi, and they stand in front of the giant temple constructed to the goat god Pan. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Almost like saying these kind of people here who we identify as wrong, as different, as not on the inside, because it's the Jew who has been chosen by God. It's Israel who is the chosen people. And these folks are not. But Jesus brings us here to talk about the triumph of the church. It's going to be these outsiders who are going to come in and be a part of what he's doing. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. Yes. But <laughs> there's something really cool going on here that I think we've overlooked a lot. And it's this notion that like hell's not going to get me now because 
I'm a part of the church, and they're not as strong as we are, so all of their advances will fail. But Jesus here is talking about the gates of hell. And what is a gate built to do? A gate is a defensive structure. It's meant to keep something in or keep you out. Hell is on defense against the church. These gates of hell are a defensive structure. And what does Jesus say? He says that they will fail, that they will not be able to hold the church out. That what we are doing is bigger than what hell is doing, and they will not be able to stop it. That these powers that Paul talks about in the spiritual realm have no chance against the church. And despite their best efforts to keep us out, because they're on defense now, they're just trying to keep the church away, will fail. And we have been so well equipped for this, because we are called to do this. We are been asked to join God in making the world a better place. These things that we've identified as being wrong and evil and dark, this suffering has barred itself off because it knows we're coming. And Jesus says, come and join me in fixing things. We're going to go and make the world a better place. And we've been equipped for this. In um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, Paul describes how God has equipped us with this gift that he calls the full armor of God. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, then we go on offense. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the, this enemy. Your faith protects you from anything the enemy can throw at you. This knowing. Christ and believing what he said defends us against anything our adversary could do. Take the helmet of salvation and know, this is like what David was preaching on, being able to be confident. Take the salvation, wear it as a helmet, know that you are protected, understand that this is real and there is nothing that can take you from God's hand. Was there another slide? We skipped something. All right, it's not in there. Um, He also adds, wear the shoes of the gospel of peace. Being... Oh, it's on there. Could you go back to that last one? Thank you, friendly crowd people. Wear the shoes of peace that is the gospel Be ready to take this message anywhere and everywhere. Wherever you are asked to go, go in the gospel, this message of peace. Protect what is you, the core, with this breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of God that through Christ has been poured out on us, protects the central part of what we are. And what holds it all together? The belt of truth. 
this thing that holds all of this onto righteousness and the gospel of peace and your shield and the sword that is the word of the Lord. This is why uh, we have our, in our military, our soldiers learn how to assemble and disassemble their weapons and they get so proficient at it, they can do it blindfolded, underwater, backwards, probably zero gravity. But what good is a soldier who doesn't know his weapon? We need to know this book because it is our greatest weapon against the enemy. All of this darkness and suffering must leave at the word of Christ. So it's so important that as Christians, we know our tools, that we know this book. And what holds all of this onto us is the belt of truth. Truth holds it all together because we know it when we see it. We know the truth when we hear it, when we encounter it. And it reminds us constantly that the righteousness of God is real, that our salvation is secure, that our word is strong, and that our faith will defend us, and that the gospel will go everywhere it has been asked. So in this, we have been called to be strong because we have the tools, we have been equipped to take on these things that we've identified as wrong. And as the church, this is our mission to take the gospel to everyone, everywhere. The command from Christ is go. Make disciples. Spread the word. Let everyone know what Christ has done, that God has joined us in this brokenness. And that through that, he's making a new day now. We don't have to wait. There is life before death as well. And there's a new life, and it is life to the full. Um, If you all throw up uh, Psalm 18, in this psalm, uh, David praises God for defending him and for making him strong enough to take out these dark enemies, this enemy stronghold David has been able to infiltrate. And so I want to share this with you as a reassurance that what God has promised is true and that he's done it and that he's doing it. I love you. Lord God, you make me strong. You are mighty rock. You are my fortress and my protector, the place where I am safe, my shield, my weapon, and my place of shelter. I was in terrible trouble when I called out to you, but from your temple you heard me. And answered my prayer. You came to my rescue. You are always loyal to your loyal people. And you are always faithful to the faithful. With all who are sincere, you are sincere. You alone are God, the only one, a mighty rock. You give strength and guidance to me. You make my feet run fast like those of a deer. And you help me stand on the mountains. You teach my hands to fight, my arms to use a bow of bronze. You are my only shield. 
Your right hand supports me. Now I will not stumble. With my God, I can go up against any army and win. With my God, I can storm the gates. With my God, I can jump over any wall intended to keep me out. This promise is for you too today. The gates of hell will not be able to stand against the church. These structures and these strong places where the evil has built to keep us out have no chance against the word of God, have no ability to hold their ground when the church advances. Anything that is pushing on you, any of this suffering that is upon us, any of this oppression can be pushed off. And we can take this message to the world and show them that Christ's love is real and that he is powerful and that he is making a new world here today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they are being filled. God has promised to meet us in this. He has promised not to abandon us. And he has promised that he is making a new day. Let's pray.